Hello and welcome back to Venting Quarantinos with just me and Stephen Burns at the minute because coming up, the legend that is Jamie Trinker speaks to Zalavier Nelson Jr. and it's a fascinating interview. In fact, he announces a new game on this very podcast so you should stick around for that if you don't know who he is he wrote Hypnospace Outlaw which is the 90s internet simulator which I haven't played but presumably it's just your mum shouting you to get off the fucking internet because you're <laughs> you know she's trying to use the phone to call your auntie and uh, and he wrote uh, Can Androids Pray which I have played which is really good it's about half hour conversation about confronting death which you know has a lot of similarities to a lot of our podcasts really yeah yeah lot, okay good yeah. good mix i like have that. you played either of those Stephen? i don't know is vince mcmahon in either of those games does it it's not no no does it have uh i don't but know I, I haven't played a uh, hit and a space outlaw so maybe he does pop up i'd be into that he might do because in fact if i can just load him into the game you know wwf.com if it's 90s internet he'd probably just turn up there are great it's stories cruising around different internet pages and stuff isn't it so he's probably just you know nicking an eminem album off Appsner at some point or something downloading it on limewire or whatever and then realizing that it's uh, it's not that at all and it has deleted uh, your entire house make it his myspace page or something. <laughs> i think that's a bit later actually dave stop getting the internet wrong <laughs> So, um, yeah, well, that is... I'm actually really looking forward to listening to all of that again because it's a fascinating discussion. And as Jim is really excited about, there is a new game from the man himself getting announced on the podcast. That's uh, Zalabia, not Jim. He can't make games because he's just too stupid. Um, but, yeah, it's fascinating. So look forward to that. That's all coming up shortly. And, well, what else is there? What else have we got to talk about? Oh, Dave, got the Godfather 2 Lake Tahoe estate house, whatever, is up for sale. You haven't even planned this. We tied that in beautifully to having watched the Godfather 2 last night. I introduced my girlfriend to the Godfather and part two in the previous week. They still hold up, surprisingly. Oh, really? Do they? Uh, (laughs) Still two of the greatest films ever made. (laughs) Which which one do you prefer? The second one. But, Do you? Because I actually think I prefer the first one. I don't have a problem with uh, people who prefer the first one. I Because in the... Get a bit uh, turtlenecks on here. The the reason they work so well together, well, one of them is that a lot of the young Vito Corleone stuff is in the original novel. So that's all, all kind of there anyway. But the I just love mm-hmm. the descent, the moral event horizon, the zombification of Michael Corleone. Yeah. And it, a lot of that is to do with the, the Lake Tahoe house. The looking out, of course, over the lake, but mm-hmm. it looks like a ghostly manor, even when it's filled with people. And I get that that is what they're going for, you know, all dark and Michael mm-hmm. Corleone looming out of the shadows. But it's not just what's in frame, as it were, or what you're focusing on. There's there's something really sinister about it. Of course, Gordon Willis was the man. Yes. But yeah, and with Michael Corleone padding around, it's all, it, it feels in a way like a kind of Dracula movie. Mm-hmm. And that's his Transylvania uh, but obviously a bit more, bit more, you know, gangsterism than that. But, yeah. you know. I mean, they're both just f- phenomenal. Like, just like every element of them. You know, when some things are, are, are exaggerated as how good they are and cultural touchstones and things. But when you go back and revisit it, it is like, oh yeah, every every single word that's that's written about this is absolutely justified. Yes, it's it's just insane really, isn't it, to think. But we're getting, everyone knows The Godfather is amazing. We're getting sidetracked. How much is this property and how do we get it? Right, yeah, sorry. So it's uh, the best informed man in games journalism. Alex Donaldson gets on the phone to me this morning and you know that if he's on the horn, something is going He's already down. got an offer in, mate. He's already got exactly. an offer in. He got an email about it, I think. 
<laughs> what a mailing list is he well uh, Sotheby's uh, Sotheby's are looking after it Dave so uh, Alex Donald sends you mad but uh, crowdfunder why I not I mean definitely no other worthy causes that people could be giving pennies to at this time but just let's crowdfund us buying the Godfather 2 house I'm sorry Dave you didn't actually dissuade me in any way shape or form <laughs> yeah. uh, with, with that one <laughs> You know they'll have fucked it up, though, the people who own it now. They've ripped it all out. And... Oh, yeah, it'll be shite, won't it? Yeah, and apparently it only has space for six boats. I'm not sure. Though. Oh, well, what are you going to do with the rest of them? Exactly, exactly. Six boats? I don't know. That feels punitive to me. Where is it? Uh, it's Lake Tahoe. It's in California. Well, we're sticking with uh, with California. We've had some more interesting emails Yes, in. we have. Yes, we have. One from uh, Mr. T in California. Yeah. I assume that is actually Beer Baracus. I don't, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, he said that he's, he's fled from the wildfires in his area in uh, October 2017 with just video gamer podcasts and jim burns dave podcasts and then the same thing happened two years later so he's actually sat in the dark listening all the way through them again which you've i mean we should have a crowdfunder for that guy really that yeah. is pain yeah. yes it's uh it, it's so weird to think that just talking shit into a microphone is helping people but if it is then this is why we're recording them so <laughs> you know all the best to everyone who is listening to it no matter if you're escaping any wildfires or have in the past or you know are just bored out of your mind sitting there right now wondering why Neighbours has gone from Monday to Wednesdays and Fridays, or Monday and Fridays, apparently, now. Not to confirm. As if you don't know. Uh, well, you know. But yeah, we'll be recording loads of these, so hopefully we can uh, at least bring some normalcy into the day and some shit jokes. Also, Dave, I found a Nokia 3330 the other day. Oh, I've got one in the suitcase behind me. <laughs> Dave, that makes it sound like our jobs are different to what we say in our tax returns. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does, yeah. I was, I was using them as, uh, as building props for a future shoot we've got coming out, so I was digging oh, up all yes, my old phones. Oh, yes, of course, of course. Well, we can't say any more about that, but... That's, that's my Glassdale, sh- uh, my Glassdale phone, because it just lasts forever. Do you for still take it days and days and days. Yeah, yeah. The, um, there's a great line in John Niven's book kill your friends where he plays a music a and r guy and he hates music uh, it's a bit like american psycho but uh, for british uh, music in the 90s and there's a great line where he goes crackers with the rest of the industry execs at glastow and then in the morning when they're all on massive come downs or drunk or whatever one of the executives has got the new because this is like mid 96 97 one of them's got one of the 3210s one of the early nokia ones that got big and he yes. describes it as the beaming green cool light of civilization as he says let's get back to the hotel <laughs> indestructible <laughs> yeah, exactly stick it you know take it to the song that might be over the top but i guess uh, I, guess, <laughs> I guess we'll see we will leave you to the amazing words of uh Salavio nelson and the not so amazing words of sir jamie trinker and uh yeah we're really excited about what's going to be talked about following our nonsense here. So take it easy as ever. Thanks for listening and thanks for getting in touch. And please continue to do so if you feel you have to or need to or want to do so. All right, we're going now. Bye. So I know you from your work on PC Gamer, Hypnospace Outlaw. I, I didn't finish it. I'm really sorry. Um, it's just because I'm busy, not because it was bad or anything. I don't finish 99% of the games that I play. It is a, a, a shameful prospect, but not uncommon. And I certainly don't hold it against anyone. <laughs> well, I've noticed that like every week you've got a new game that you've started, right? I follow you on Twitter and you always seem to be talking about something else, whether it's being in, into a new game or being in a new city 
Up until recently. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I was bouncing all over the place yeah. in terms of location. And I work a lot. And the timelines in games are variable, especially when you're a contractor. Mm. I've been running into this really weird situation in the past couple years where I just have... <laughs> An announcement to make basically every week. I know, man. About, oh, I'm releasing a thing. I'm starting a thing. Here's a thing I'm doing. Here's an award. I got whiplash it's, following you on Twitter. <laughs> is it because in between all of that, all of that very professional progress slash promotional material, I'll just insert a random shit post. Yeah, absolutely. And it's incredible. Fair. And what feels like a 5am all caps manic rant about something that's gone wrong with game development, but you actually kind of love it. <laughs> love it is a stretch, <laughs> but I sure do engage with it. Yeah. Much like Twitter itself. <laughs> I mean, look, games are, they're hard to make, right? Software is difficult. It's magic. It shouldn't work. The interesting thing about game development and the piece that's important to focus on here is mm. not so much that game development is difficult, though it certainly is. It's just that as an industry... We have done such a poor job of discussing the process mm. of how a game comes to you. For context, if I say the word CGI to you for a film, there's a bunch of levels of understanding there. You can be like, oh, that's when the computer puts its graphics in my movie. And there's a level above that where it's like, okay, here's blue screen. Yeah. Or here's computer-generated characters versus computer-generated environments versus computer-generated props. There's all these different escalating levels you can have, but you also have a base familiarity with the concept of what CGI is doing. In the world of game development, you either have all of the knowledge or none of it. Yeah. When I was a journalist at PC Gamer, every month I would do this column called Making Games is Fucking Hard. That name got changed to Inside Development for some reason. I mean, that doesn't get it across at all. That... No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> but it was a really, really good time. I had a fantastic uh, editing crew supporting that column. And every month I would seek out game developers and I'd ask, what is a mundane piece of your world that is in fact really really hard it first of all showed me that everything is hard from cameras to weather to basic dialogue systems it's all really complicated actually and yet we do it but the other thing that showed me is i had to learn all about the graphics rendering pipeline in a freelancer's deadline <laughs> what ended up being 750 words to try to explain why cameras are the worst thing, and yet all games have them. And then I had to relearn that entire concept again recently for my own game because I just didn't understand it. There's so many different ways of approaching the same problems. I've been both directing departments of games and directing games for like the past couple years now. Yeah. And I didn't know what deferred rendering was until a couple of months ago. I didn't know what an animation rig actually meant or skin weights or all these different things. What I'm really trying to capture is this overall landscape where game development is so vast and varied and interesting. And has so many terms, but both developers, if you aren't working in a certain field, yeah. uh, like I wasn't working in animation, and their audience do not have even a base level understanding of what a thing is and what it means for the games. People have a vocabulary, but none of the context that informs that vocabulary. And sometimes not even the vocabulary. Yeah. For example, frame rate didn't 
really mean anything to me except is the game smooth until I had a developer explain to me <laughs> every frame is when the game updates. And if you have 30 FPS, you have 33 milliseconds for everything that you see on screen, including all logic under the hood to generate. If we have 60 frames per second, that gets cut down to 16 milliseconds. And in that moment, my mind exploded because suddenly I went, wait, 60 FPS. <laughs> that means everything in a game, every explosion, every arc of a physics object, every bullet in your ammo sack, every single thing here both on and off screen, if it's necessary, is being rendered in 16 milliseconds to do a 60 FPS result. That is magic. That is absurd. It's insane. But the consequences of that are not apparent on either side of the fence. So, hmm. of course, there's a mistrust here. Of course, there is yeah. a, an overall confusion because we're all the blind people grasping at the elephant, describing <laughs> what we see. But in fact, some of us are grasping giraffes. Some of us are grasping elephants. And some of us are just kind of fondling trees, <laughs> insisting that we are touching elephants instead. <laughs> that column you did for PC Gamer, was was that your route into game development? Having to figure out these concepts to write about them, was that your route into doing this for a living? Or am I mistaken there? You aren't mistaken, but the timeline is a little bit yeah. interesting. What I would say is instead, the column emerged from me starting to develop games. So I, oh, right. okay. I started with Twine Games that got some cool attention and praise. And not only did that feel good, but it did reveal to me that even for quote unquote, a basic type of game, like a twine game, hmm. there's just so much stuff and it's really hard. Yeah. And then there's the creative aspect of it, which is also difficult to pull off. As someone who plays games, I in fact felt cheated because the basic realities of these deep and incredible worlds that I was interacting with and that had touched me were sealed off from me, not on purpose, although sometimes that's definitely been a thing, an obfuscation of terms so that Sega tells you it. we have blast processing <laughs> and you don't ask what is blast processing. Yeah. But on the other end of that, you just have this wide world of stuff that people don't know. And I think if they knew the magic of game development. I think if even more game developers knew the magic of what they were actually creating and participating in and how they were all impacting each other, how we are all connected, then there would be an exponential effect on the health of the conversations and of the people inside of the field. Hopefully an explosion of empathy for the people on the uh, the people at the coalface making these things, right? I would certainly hope so. There's one example that always sticks out for me to do with Skyrim. At some point in the months after it came out, which I don't want to admit is 10 years ago because it makes me feel like I'm 60 years old. <laughs> Bethesda games have this uh, reputation for being buggy and etc. And there was this video going around that demonstrated that if you picked up a pot and put it on a character's head you could then ransack their shop and they wouldn't react because they couldn't see you stealing stuff because there was a pot on their head right <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> and I, I was fascinated by this because this was uh, distributed as an example of how terrible and buggy bethesda games are and i'm like 
But that's actually an example of their systems working perfectly and doing something that they're absolutely supposed to be doing. Like the, the, All the systems of the game at that point are following all the rules. There is a disconnect where people don't understand that computers essentially just do what you tell them to. And the, uh, and the disconnect is often just in, in how those instructions have been written down. Yeah, it's very easy to tell a computer, hey, here's a list of things. Here's a list of things. And then there's, here's a list of things, pick one. But the instant you say, here's a list of things, pick one weighted towards certain results. The exponential explosion in complexity potentially is mind boggling. One interesting thing that I've been thinking over a lot lately is Bethesda games are a perfect example of how game development and invested resources genuinely affect even who can make certain types of games. Yeah. So if you look at Bethesda Game Studios, they went from Daggerfall. There was a lot of games during that era which were occupying similar aesthetic space and systemic space, things like Ultima and so on. It had different approaches, of course, which led to it becoming this big old franchise. And before that, Arena even had different approaches and was less complex and so on. But a developer in that era, it's feasible that someone else could have made Daggerfall. Yeah. But as time has gone on, and as people have criticized, like, erg, why does Bethesda keep using the same engine? Mm -hmm. First of all, if they used a different production pipeline, it would break all of the modding practices that now have over 20 years of built up knowledge. Yeah. Like people have been making mods for like 20 years. They've been making mods in pretty much the same way for pretty much 20 years, which is absurd you would lose an incalculable amount of communal progress and probably make a lot of people very angry if you did that to so quote unquote improve the engine. The other element of this is because Bethesda Game Studios has been making the same sort of game for a long time, upping the affordances, upping the specific way in which they're building it. At this point, if any other studio, especially on a AAA level, wanted to make a Bethesda game, it would be deeply expensive if not impossible. Mm. They've created an environment where Bethesda Game Studios makes the games they can because they've been building the environment to make that games for so long. Anyone playing catch up with even the basic elements of creating a Bethesda game would be really far behind. Same thing with the new Hitman games, right? They do so much unique stuff. Yeah. That at this point, if you wanted to make a Hitman like, that's just, I wouldn't say impossible, nothing is impossible, but it is entirely unfeasible. We're in a capturing environment where different studios just make different types of games that other studios basically can't make at this point for different content burdens. And that's fascinating. It's another thing that the more you learn about game development, the more you understand the reasons why things work. It's really fascinating. It's never occurred to me. Of course, different creators uh, move between studios and end up working on very similar projects because mm. upstart studios who want to make a game like Skyrim will probably hire people who've worked on Bethesda games, right? You would have to do that because the, the economy of that will dictate that you have to get people who've already been doing it. It's like everything's made of stone now, you know? It's like it's very difficult to change the direction of the Titanic. Here's the funny part. I actually think that that's less true than ever as well. Yeah. And this is an entire other different area of complexity, right? Okay. The way in which we build games has 
changed. Hmm. People are right about that when they make that criticism that perhaps even games in AAA are less inventive. Yeah. And here's why. Back in, let's say, the sixth generation, right? The sixth console generation. You have the PS2. You have the original Xbox. I can't say the Xbox One because reasons. (laughs) And GameCube are all coming out during this time. We do not have the computational resources to make a human face. Making a human face is an act of hubris. (laughs) So we all kind of agree that a human face looks a certain way. Yeah. And then make games. We make games around that because that isn't a thing we can even feasibly attempt. Yeah. As games progress in fidelity, now we have the ability to make not just human faces, we can make hands. Sometimes we can make hands shake. A character took off a jacket in real time in a game recently, Uncharted 4, and it blew everyone's minds because that's a thing we have been able to do for like... 30, 40 years. Yeah, that was men. Yeah, that was mad. And people didn't realize they'd never seen it before until they saw it. <laughs> <laughs> but because we have that fidelity burden, if we try to make games the same way we did then, hmm. pandemic games are a perfect example. They made Star Wars Battlefront. They made Mercenaries. They made the Saboteur. They made really interesting conceptual stuff that was a little bit broken, a little bit janky, but at its core was deeply interesting and had different loops and outlooks on what they were doing, partially because they had horrible budget constraints and schedules to work under. Yeah. If you tried to put that into Star Wars Battlefront to 2017 or whatever, <laughs> there would be a riot. Yeah. Because the fidelity has increased to the point that you can't just shove in this broken thing where we smooth over one animation or we just like for sprinting in the Star Wars Battlefront games, some of the characters clearly All they do is just multiply their normal run speed times two and then just speed up the animation. (laughs) If you did that now with a modern character, that would there would at least be a resistance against it. Oh, 500 threads on Reddit. See, you have this environment (laughs) where uh, folks are noticing that the ways in which games are being made is changing or the Mm. things that we can put in games is changing. But yeah, because we don't have this distributed knowledge, this necessary knowledge of how these games come to be in the first place and the historical basis of it, then we don't have a reasonable context for discussing those changes and what they are and how they work. I'm fascinated by how, as a medium, Mm -hmm. we are constantly progressing and regressing at lightning speed. And that knowledge is part of what makes you realize that how young we are as a field. Yeah. Did you know that, like, again, talk about the sixth generation. You know, everyone was basically making their own engines, right? Yeah, yeah. Everyone was building physics from scratch. Everyone was building audio handling from scratch. There was middlewares and so on around, like, FMOD and WYs. But even then, like, Speedtree has only really existed since around Mm -hmm. Oblivion times. Yeah. And now that's used for pretty much every AAA game around. You can make a game from the sixth generation at an exponentially smaller cost and with a increased level of polish that the developers at the time could not have even imagined because of how we progress in terms of technology and having game engines like Unity. And then you have all of these threads that say Unity is the devil, (laughs) not realizing that that very technology, this very practice of having different engines, different things that can play similarly Mm. is why we have games at the fidelity that we're making them 
within two years, three years, four years, instead of ten. Of course. As the medium matures and as the practices get nailed down, parallels are often drawn with the film industry quite erroneously, but I think in this it's quite consistent how the technology of filmmaking progressed at a, a breakneck speed, uh, and then you get to the 60s and 70s, and the way people make films remained remarkably the same until the sort of computer explosion of the late 80s, early 90s. But we're still in that first burst with video games, aren't we that first sort of three decades and it's wonderful and terrifying at the same time in a film they had distinct eras Mm. where conceptual technological and aesthetic considerations were deeply explored all within a certain bandwidth and then they moved on to the next thing so the 60s and 70s being a prime example you have the Hollywood new wave where like Spielberg and Lucas and Scorsese are coming up and their approach is incredibly unique for the time. And they are fully exploring the ideas of that era along with the other filmmakers at the time to the point where you can point at 70s films and say, that is a film from the 70s. Yeah, yeah. And you can tell because of this and this and this and this and this reasons. Hmm. And all of the progress that is made during that time carries over into the successive eras in some way. Hmm. Now, games, because of how console generations have worked to date, we are technically still in the NES era. Hmm. We're still in the Atari 2600 era. We are still in the area of the SNES, the Dreamcast, the original Xbox. All of these things are technically all still happening at the same time. Because as an industry, we've moved so fast and we've ditched so many things. Remember for like a decade, we didn't make World War II shooters because we're like, no one is ever going to buy a shooter set in World <laughs> War II again. It's broken. The ceiling is falling. Yeah. yeah. In games, there are some errors. There are some trends you can see. There is progress that's been made. Yeah. But we abandon so many of our darlings. Yeah. Some ideas are only explored in a single game that might have sold okay. <laughs> that's true. And that's just left. If I wanted to make a film today, yeah. especially if I wanted to make a quote-unquote original film, well, it's been over 100 years since film became a thing, and I've got all of those ideas that have been explored in some detail since then that are both informing my decisions, but also meaning that it's very difficult to make something wholly original. Mm. In games, all I have to do is pick up a licensed game from 2004 and be like, oh, I just make this. That's literally it. <laughs> because <laughs> Is this why you're fascinated with licensed games? Licensed games, especially because they had these deep limitations, right? Yeah, yeah, They had yeah. to explore, like Mike Bithel used to work on uh, licensed games before he was that good old indie boy. Yeah. Uh, and... Attack and the Power of Juju, which is one of the games he worked on, yeah. that was supposed to be Prince of Persia plus God of War. Oh uh, and they explored that for a Nickelodeon TV show, which most people today do not remember, and mashed it up in a game. And it, to all accounts, it worked pretty fine, 7 out of 10. But because we don't have access to Attack and the Power of Juju anymore because of licensing and, all, and technology and all these other different issues... If the Tack and the Power Juju team came up with something really, really clever, something really, really interesting, yeah. it's just buried there. We are an industry taking a shovel, digging a grave, <laughs> and then slowly burying ourselves alive. <laughs> yeah. And we've got 
all of these valuable pieces underneath the surface. We've got legs here. We've got feet here. We've got our hands and increasingly our necks. Yeah. And we say the neck is already underneath <laughs> the thing. I don't know what to tell you. People aren't going to buy like a classic Castlevania game anymore. Enter Bloodstained and the Ritual of the Night. Yeah, oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Turns out people love that because this is a magical time. This is a magical time to be in this medium because it really is. everything is compressed. Everything is existing in a Schrodinger's flux state where technically we are making every game that's ever been made <laughs> and none of the games that have ever been made. Yeah. And it's all happening at once. Man, it's incredible. I tell you what, one of the things that I never thought I'd see was the uh, the art style, the general look of the PS1 era. PS1 games have this look. They're blocky. They're polygonal. They've got this weird kind of warped texture thing going on. Um, and I never thought I'd see video games try to emulate that era in the same way that we've tried to emulate 8-bit and 16-bit games. But that's that's happening a lot. You look back on it and you think, I mean, I thought this looked shit back then. <laughs> I am fairly certain that within the next year or so, we're going to have a game that does really, really well with lock-on targeting. And everyone's going to be like, oh, shoot, we need to make games with lock-on targeting. If you are someone who has played games from the PS1 era and so on, you would know that there was a time where lock-on targeting was the only way that we could make action games in third person because, God, it was difficult to <laughs> uh, play those games otherwise. They had to have lock-on targeting. Uh, lock-on targeting was a necessity. At a certain point, it will become a choice. At a certain point, other people will realize that Oh, yeah, we can make lock-on targeting games. And that's the exact thing I'm talking about. This is the encapsulation. We did not have the era. You can't point back to the era of games where it's like, oh, that's when everything was lock-on targeting because it hasn't ended. And it wasn't properly explored when it was here. So it's just uh, games is an industry. I think a really good example of this is, did you see the animated movie Hercules by Disney? Uh, when I was a child. <laughs> there is a point at which Hercules jumps into spoilers, <laughs> literally into the river sticks or some analog. Hmm. Uh, it's a climactic action sequence. But in that moment, when he dives in, he is surrounded by dead souls and the spirits of anyone that's ever existed. And they are physical and tangible and real. They're real threats for him in that instance to his ongoing journey to make Disney millions of dollars. In terms of games, we are in that river sticks. We are a industry surrounded by the ghosts of the past. And we are interacting with it in real time and moving around it. And the more you realize how collapsed that space is, the more I believe you have a, a environment to make some really, really interesting stuff. Man, I did not expect a, a discussion about game development to become as, <laughs> as metaphysical as this. I was looking at your work and trying to find a sort of common thread in the games that you've worked on. And um, so Can Androids Pray depicts this kind of fraught conversation between two characters who are facing death together. Mm. And can we talk about what your involvement with Adios is? Yeah, I was the producer and facilitator for that. So okay. my main role was here is a creator who does really, really good work. Yeah. And here's other people who do really, really good work. How do I get that game funded and produce an environment to enable them to do their best work? 
Um, I did edit the script when it was like when the script was finished. But yeah, I wasn't the direction or writing or narrative for it at all. I was just a person who made things happen because I enjoy making things happen. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> the only common thread I could really find because you've done so many very different things uh, was between Can Androids Pray and, and what I know about Adios since it's been announced. It all centers around the communication between two characters and there's... Oh yeah, that was all Doc. That's a deeply dangerous thing for an indie game to do. Yeah. Like, you need animations for that and, and AI. And yeah. It needs to be convincing and so on. I was <laughs> very, very worried, but the team has pulled off something incredible in an unprecedented amount of time, and I was able to yeah. help them do that. I mean, it looks phenomenal. I'm really looking forward to playing it. So, given that I struggled to find a common thread between the sort of things you've done, is there one uh, that you recognize? Is there one that you would be able to describe? Or... Did you just make stuff because you thought it was cool or you thought it was a great idea at the time and there wasn't a particular, there was nothing about it that said this is a Nelson game? I'd say, especially over time, the concept of a Nelson game is solidifying. Yeah. It's been in flux because my journey in games started with me believing I was going to quit games. Uh, realizing, oh shoot, I actually really like making games. Yeah. I was a journalist at first and I thought I'd make one game and then leave these childish things behind me <laughs> and get a real job. And then now I, I have a studio. I think only just now am I really starting to have a voice that is identifiable, that you can trace. And I think Cantor's Prey is one of the first indications of where I am now and where i'm going hmm. and that is games that are made with interesting limitations candrid's prey has no animation yeah it is literally two people about to die yeah and asking the question how do you make a game with no animation just using camera cuts just using conversation how do you make that a compelling experience yeah. with my current game or one of my current games an airport for aliens currently <laughs> run by dogs i said i'm going to make stock photos into game characters. And now that's a game that has been on a bunch of most anticipated indie lists. It's been on a bunch of most anticipated <laughs> lists, period. It's got best of show fucking nominations <laughs> from when I showed it at things. It's had an absurd amount of reach. And that is what excites me more than anything. I took a challenge. I took a limitation, I took a constraint. No one <laughs> or no one sensible would say, let's make a game about stock photos. Yeah. But I did that and I said, I can make that into something special. And then I did. And that is something I'm so thankful for. And I know that it's what helps me get out of bed in the morning because I had the opportunity to aggressively explore the space that I cared about. Man, I, I, <laughs> I tell you what, I think... I think I understand your work a lot more now. Not that not that I didn't understand it on some level before, but I think it's really like, man, there's a whole other dimension of it. Uh, Can Androids Play is a fantastic game that you made with uh, Nat Clayton and uh, with music by Priscilla Snow. And uh, I do want to sort of, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, but I do want to recommend it again on, on the podcast that people check it out. It's coming to Nintendo Switch on April 16th. Yeah, it's the perfect time. There's no excuse. It's on Xbox. It's coming to Switch. It's a fantastic game. And you talk about the fact that you've constructed this narrative under such limitations as there's no animation. It's it's basically a dialogue system and, and some visuals, right? But it's so effective and it hints at a much wider universe than you actually see. I, I reviewed it twice, essentially. Uh, once as a 
fox puppet and uh, once as a sort of pretend person for a magazine <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and on both occasions the thing that really struck me when thinking about it was um, how much it does with so little I didn't realize that that was sort of one of the driving concepts behind its inception part of it is I was looking at other mediums yeah right so like TV has bottle episodes. They either don't have the budget to move to a different set or they yeah. need to save their budget for something else. So they take a story, build it around a single set. And these episodes usually become beloved by their community. Like we're still talking about The Fly from Breaking Bad. Oh, God, yeah. And that came out, what, over half a decade ago, which is terrifying. The Fly <laughs> exists because of interesting limitations. Hmm. There was another TV series that I haven't heard people speak about. That was entirely about this. It was called The Booth at the End. I haven't heard of this. Yeah, most people haven't. And the entire conceit of the series is that there is a man who sits in a diner in this booth at the end. And if you come to him, you can make basically anything come true. But he is going to open that book and the book is going to tell him what you have to do to make your thing come true. So you'll come in and say, I want a million dollars. And he'll say, well, you have to strangle a dog. <laughs> Or this isn't an exact this isn't an exact example, but it's stuff like or it could be like you have to plant 10 flowers. You want a million dollars? You got to plant for 10 flowers or you got to make three people cry. <laughs> and they're like, wait, three people cry. What what does that mean? How, how am I supposed to do, do I do I hurt him? It's like he said, you have to make three people cry and you have to come back and tell me how it's going. And so in that show. You never see the people's lives, what they do, how they do it. It is entirely centered around this person making deals and the people coming back and telling him how it's going and how you start to interact with the people who are coming in, becoming connected to each other in strange ways or already were connected to each other in strange ways as who they are begins to reveal itself. It's a fascinating show. It is literally just a booth at a diner <laughs> i asked why don't games yeah. have that yeah i can see how it's informed can androids pray definitely i actually watched it after i made can androids pray <laughs> <laughs> i really appreciate uh your kind words about can androids pray gosh <laughs> You mentioned a fake person for a thing. Did I see this piece of coverage? Where was this? Uh, this is in Wireframe magazine. Oh, that was so... Yes, I saw Wireframe. It was so... That was such a lovely nod. Thank you. <laughs> um, I write bits for that. I mean, just the cat's out of the bag now. But um, I, I write things like that under a pseudonym because I like... We can put the cat in the bag. It hasn't, this, <laughs> this episode hasn't been edited yet. <laughs> but no, I, I like writing about games, but I don't like people shouting at me on twitter so i tend to do it anonymously because you, you know what it's like it doesn't matter what you do you people end up shouting at you for things that you haven't said uh, so i find it a lot easier for my mental health to just do it uh without my name attached to it because i like just doing it the morning i woke up yeah. and found out that hypnospace outlaw had been nominated for a bunch of igfs yeah i woke up and my phone was basically buzzing and buzzing and buzzing because I had it on silent, but it was a bunch receiving a bunch of notifications. And I had this moment of abject panic because the previous night <laughs> I had done a really bad pun tweet about Sting. And I thought people, I thought that Sting had found it. I thought that I had done a bad tweet about Sting and I had been found. 
uh, and I was going to pay sting, for my crime. Sting the Geordie singer or sting the uh, wrestler? Sting the singer. <laughs> All right, okay. I mean, he'd have loved it. He's fine being sent up. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about uh, an airport. <laughs> Current, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs. Nailed it. Um, every now and then you send me a build of this and it's um, it's fascinating to see it coming along. I read an interview you did about it where you described how you came up with it. As you've mentioned before, you're someone who travels a lot and to a much smaller scale, I'm someone who travels a lot as well, but mainly just between England and Scotland. But I recognise how airports feel like a sort of netherworld in negative time you know mm. i feel like i don't exist when i'm between airports i feel like i'm just buffering while the next city loads me you know <laughs> um <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a really strange kind of non-place i can't remember your exact words but you sort of allude to that how they're very odd places to exist in they get really really odd when you enter them incredibly early yeah so i've arrived at some airports just when they're opening up or before they open up uh, to the point that I've been in an airport where airports never play music. I was in an airport that was playing music because it was just that early in the morning mm. and I recorded it and I put it up on Twitter and I've never had such a sense of the uncanny as, yeah, being in this netherworld place in a time where it felt very tangibly like I shouldn't be. Also, I nearly got arrested in an airport <laughs> because I was having deep hallucinations oh wow that's a whole other story oh <laughs> so this very nice couple invite me back to their apartment to watch magic mike for the first time apropos of nothing okay and did you go i mean i hadn't seen magic mike <laughs> have you seen magic mike now i saw a significant portion of magic mike <laughs> they got sleepy and i was like okay gonna head out and they were like cool and i'm now continuing to be friends with that couple they are fantastic people but for some reason when i got back to the airport i was like okay i could go to my back to my airbnb sleep for like an hour and then go to the airport or i can arrive at this airport at 3 a.m hmm. and be there ready to go as soon as the airport uh opens and as soon as my gate opens yeah uh what instead happened is Maybe it was sleep deprivation? I don't know. But I started to, uh, when I got into the airport, things were fine yeah. until I started to get some hardcore hallucinations, just deeply discomforting, full body, sense, full sensory hallucinations uh, that I had to manage very intentionally yeah. so that I didn't cause a panic in all of the people around me because people sure did start to get so that I didn't get arrested because cops for sure were looking at me. There was a point at which <laughs> I... Heard the announcement over the loudspeaker. I had quieted myself after some other events of <laughs> this hellscape uh, that I had in injected myself into. <laughs> you don't want to have hallucinations in an airport. And the announcement came with a loudspeaker. If your baggage is unattended, it will be destroyed. Please do not leave your baggage unattended. Very normal message in an airport. Yeah. Me, I took that that the speaker was speaking personally to me, <laughs> like God, and that because I had a backpack on yeah. and did, was not observing my baggage directly, it was unattended. So I took off my backpack. I held it in front of me with my arms bolt straight, and I was at that stance in a sort of <laughs> fugue trance okay. for about 15 minutes, half an hour. I don't even know how long, but when I emerged from it, I looked around very quickly. The cop who had just been giving me glances was now full on staring at me <laughs> uh, and would not remove his eyes from me until I 
went to my flight. And then all the people that had previously been sitting in chairs adjoining me had vacated and were standing in a corner of the room. <laughs> so, I, I mean, that's one way to worry everyone around you in an airport, right? Is to stare intently at your own back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I prefer to think it was the power pose I adopted wherein I held a bag which contained all of my possessions and bolt in front of me for half an hour. <laughs> I mean, and, and in fairness to you, you were just being very literal. I was being very literal and very deprived of sleep. And I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> um, and none of those hallucinations were about being flown by a dog to Phobos or there's no sort of neat narrative that we can wrap up on. <laughs> the neat narrative is <laughs> I have spent a great degree of time in airports. I have circumnavigated the globe by accident, which is a whole hell of a story in and of itself. <laughs> and in that time, I realized that airports are artificial ecosystems, mm. but they are one of the few places where you can be truly unreservedly human. Mm. So when I do an act of kindness in an airport, it's very unlikely I'll ever see that person. It's very unlikely I'll ever be rewarded for it. But I do that because it matters and because we're both human and we're both in this netherworld at the same time. Realizing that with physical airport experiences and ending up making a game all about being treated with kindness, having an experience of joy in the transition spaces that you just simply never leave, uh, it makes perfect sense because as much as these are alien airports and as much as it is stock photo dogs running them, <laughs> yeah, I can think of few better places to be human than these exact environments. I mean, what better place to be human in a place devoid of humanity, I guess? The only humanity that exists is what you bring to it, right? Absolutely. Uh, is there anything you would like to link to or anything you would like to promote while you're here? Yeah. First of all, I'd like to thank you for having me on. I talked... A lot because I'm, again, very tired. I'm right back where I started. Uh, <laughs> Man, I loved listening. I, <laughs> I just I just let you carry on because it was all gold. It's so great to finally meet you and I hope we have a chance to chat unrecorded at some point because the work you've been doing for years, I have been observing it in some form. Mm. And I just really appreciate your strange human and Geordie sensibilities. Uh, I, I find it deeply inspiring and is a overall good injected into the world every time i see a new example so thank you for that oh man uh, thank you very much thank you so much for coming on uh, and likewise i love all your work and uh, this won't be going into the podcast <laughs> but um every time you send me a new build i look forward to trying it and um i love seeing everything you're involved in i am working on a thousand things all the time and the best way to follow that at rit nelson on twitter w-r-i-t nelson my big personal project these days is an airport for aliens currently run by dogs, a first-person open-world comedy adventure game about stock photo dogs solving their problems, catching flights across a simulated universe, and having a healthy long-distance relationship with the person you love when you and your fiancé are the last two human beings left in the galaxy. You can wishlist it on Steam. I highly recommend you do so. And I'm actually releasing work-in-progress builds of it all the time via Patreon. So if you want to support the game start playing the game early or even get your dog or cat into the game which are patreon tiers you can do that uh over there we just unveiled adios me and the team over at mischief and the work that we've been doing there adios you can wish list on steam you can follow them at mischief develop and 
that mischief team. They're just super nice, talented people making a utterly unique game about a pig farmer who decides he isn't going to get rid of bodies for the mob anymore. It's the game about pig farmers who don't want to get rid of bodies for the mob anymore that you want to play in 2020. I definitely want to play it in 2020. So, I mean, no lies detected, frankly. <laughs> Finally, uh, Can Androids Pray, as you've mentioned. Can I do a small announcement here? Is Absolutely. Is this a good place to do an announcement? Uh, yeah, by all means. I'm making more Can Androids Pray. <gasps> I'm making multiple Can Androids Pray. I'm not going to say what that means yet, but you're going to be surprised at what forms some of those things take. Oh, man. Uh, As you know, I've been begging for, <laughs> for more Can Androids Pray. So I love that story. I love that world. And I, I really, I'd love to get a chance to explore it more. So that's however form that takes. You can explore the original entry on PC via itch.io and Can Androids Pray Red and Blue. And you can play Can Androids Pray Blue on Xbox One and on Nintendo Switch either now or very shortly like <laughs> time is going to be compressed this is the internet everything happens all at once this yeah. is games everything happens all at yeah. once yeah i mean i don't know we, you I can don't play even it on know nintendo switch now you can play it on ps5 now i'm not gonna say that <laughs> you can play it on nintendo switch and xbox one and pc those are the announced platforms getting ahead of myself can androids play confirm for ps5 it's <laughs> <laughs> Man, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.